Hello, everyone. Welcome to the NTI Pod Talk. My name is Diane Kaler, and I'm the director of Nutrition Therapy Institute. This pod talk is our opportunity to have fun conversations with interesting people who have interesting things to say about nutrition, food, and health. I talk to NTI instructors, students and grads, to health industry professionals, to farmers, and anyone else who has an interest in nutritional wellness. While many of our listeners come from within the NTI community as students and grads, we also have prospective students who tune in. And to those listeners in particular, I hope you find that the people we talk to inspire you to finally make the jump to pursue your passion and come to school here at NTI. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the NTI Pod Talk. Um, I am so happy today to talk to another medical practitioner, um, kind of something that I really enjoy doing is talking to medical practitioners. Uh, today we're talking to Dr. Kayla Cook, a naturopathic doctor who practices at Clear, Clear Creek Natural Medicine, which is here in Arvada, just a, a west, just outside of Denver, Colorado, for those aren't, who aren't familiar with the Denver metro area. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Cook. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about one of my favorite topics. Oh, good, good. All right. Well, um, so um, why don't we start off with you talking about your naturopathic medical training, kind of why you decided to go that route, um, you know, because obviously there are sort of two different routes that you could go, a conventional medical medics, medicine doctor and then naturopathic um, doctor. And so talk about why you made that decision to, to go in that route. And then, um, then we'll kind of get into the discussion. Okay. Sounds good. Um, yeah, so I am a licensed naturopathic doctor and I went to medical school in Portland, Oregon at in, uh, in UNM, so National University of Natural Medicine which is a four-year medical program, um, you know, the whole, the whole shebang. We really do learn the conventional medicine as well. I think people often don't, rec I don't realize that. They think that we just like learn a few things about uh, herbs and that's kind of it. Um, it's very like pretty poorly understood. I'm from Kentucky and everyone back home thinks I like went to Hogwarts for medical school. So <laughs> it's a uh, Kind of a funny joke that we just made, I'm sorry, but, that was but, just really funny. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm Harry Potter, so I'm like, I don't really mind that would be a cool reality. But um, but essentially, yeah, it's like it's just it's sort of two medical schools in one. So you're learning all of the conventional stuff, all the drugs, all the surgery, um, but you also are learning a lot more. So we have a much bigger kind of treatment toolkit. Um, and the philosophy of kind of how we're taught to look at the case and really kind of assess head to toe. Um, a person's health is really, I think, the main difference of what sets us apart is we're really good at getting at, you know, really the underlying cause of disease and what's causing um, just all the downstream effects when different organ systems get out of balance. And so we look at things as all very connected versus just segmenting into um, you know, specialty organ systems, right? I recognize that the brain talks to the gut and vice versa so that these, these things aren't just like go to a different specialist for each organ. Um, we really put it all together. But Naturopathic doctors, I think, are really uniquely trained because they do also have the conventional training so they can be very safe with using herbal medicine or, you know, nutraceuticals and supplements and things like that in safety. 
with the conventional treatments if somebody comes to you already on those things. So people often think you have to do one or the other and you can't be on conventional treatments and do alternative methods. And that's really not true at all. You can kind of utilize the best of both worlds. So, um, so my training is really unique. It was really exciting to learn all of that, although it was quite intense because you're learning basically double medical school kind of in the same amount of time. But mm-hmm. um, what really led me to want to do that is kind of funny because I, I never wanted to be a doctor if you'd asked me growing up. Um, in fact, I wanted to be a dog for uh, <laughs> Many years of my life, my parents were quite worried that I would never grow out of that phase. But um, yeah, luckily, luckily, I decided to change routes from becoming a dog. Um, yeah, but really, I, I do sometimes dog. aspire to be a cat because my cats have a great, <laughs> a great yeah. life of luxury. But sorry to interrupt. <laughs> well, honestly, like I still there's part of me that's like it would have been cool if I had figured out how to be a dog. But you know, yeah. such is life. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it wasn't until I really sort of had a lot of my own chronic health issues and was finding no help with the conventional system, um, kind of losing faith in my body, feeling like I was broken and just going to like be tired and miserable forever. Um, and it was really naturopathic medicine that got my life turned around and I think kind of saved me in a lot of ways. And so that experience was um, once I recognized, like once I realized that existed, it was pretty much like, this is what I want to do with my life. I want, want to help people in this way. Um, and I never really looked back from there. So yeah, it's been quite the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So uh, I know that you say that, you know, in, in naturopathic medicine, you don't practice uh, reductionist reductionism uh, and don't specialize in any one particular area. But I, I do think that you have expertise in autoimmune conditions, especially thyroid dysfunction. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of my, my understanding and based on conversations that we've had before. And that is certainly what I would like to talk about is thyroid dysfunction. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with at least the word hypothyroidism and and understand that there is some sort of um, you know, thyroid disorder that affects your energy levels. I think that's just a very general, like, if nothing else, um, they kind of have that understanding. Um, but you specialize or, or have expertise or, or really love to work with those who have hyperthyroidism. So if we can start off, um, for, for at a very basic level, um, maybe talk about uh, very generally or, or quickly differences between hypo and hyper, and then talk about why you like working with those who have hyperthyroidism and why that is kind of an area of specialty for you. Yeah, I think um, kind of like you said, hypothyroidism is definitely like the most talked about. It's really common. So people I've kind of heard about hypothyroidism. It gets a lot of buzz, I guess, in the yeah. medical um, media. But the opposite of that, so hypo is like an under-functioning thyroid, but the opposite side of that, which is hyperthyroid, which can be from lots of different causes, um, is really common as well. And I feel like, unfortunately, it doesn't get as lot as much like traction and conversation about um, how treatable it is and kind of what the options are. Um, and I, you know, I treated a lot of Graves disease. So I kind of, I don't really say I like specialize in any one thing, you know, per se, but I do kind of, 
I kind of do specialize in graves and hyperthyroidism in general. Um, I see a lot of it and I think I just kind of got known as a person who does that and does it well and gets people better. And so people just kind of word of mouth have sent, um, you know, everyone that they know with Graves disease to me. And so that's sort of how I like found my way into that, I would say, which is pretty organically. Um, but the thyroid, I want to just like speak to this really quickly. I know you like didn't necessarily ask me this, but I think yeah, it's just really important to to kind of comment on briefly when we're looking at thyroid issues, because from a conventional standpoint, the thyroid like gets the blame kind of all the time for everything, because it's the only thing um, typically insurance will kind of look at as TSH, which is one of the main thyroid hormones. And so I get a lot of thyroid referrals that like the thyroid is showing the signs of dysfunction, whether that's hypo or hyper. Um, and the underlying cause of that may be some other system. And so for example, within the thyroid, there's a sort of this triad where the ovaries, um, the adrenal glands and the thyroid are really intimately connected systems. And so I just kind of want to say this to encourage anyone out there listening who is struggling with hyper with hyper or hypothyroidism of really kind of any cause, try and advocate for getting testing done to look at those other systems as well to determine you know, which one kind of started the cascade of these, of, of maybe the thyroid falling. Um, for example, I see a lot of a lot of adrenal issues not being tested because insurance doesn't is kind of picky about covering that testing. So it isn't really readily done unless specifically asked for um, that the thyroid can be the, or the adrenals can be kind of underlying why the thyroid is, is not functioning well. And so I just want to say like, that's a, a really misunderstood system of like those three things connected that drive each other um, that I kind of want. I'm like very passionate about everyone in the world kind of understanding those three things so that they can advocate for getting the correct testing to determine you know, what's causing what and therefore what the treatment needs to be, because there are times when I'm treating, you know, hyperthyroidism, I'm not necessarily even doing things that are too specific for the thyroid because the other systems are kind of what's causing that problem. So um, just wanted to kind of share that piece of information for people out there trying to navigate the medical system. And it's super confusing to, mm -hmm. to kind of know what to look at. But, um, but specifically, I know today we're talking more about hyperthyroidism. Um, Graves' disease is the thing I see the most commonly causing that, and Graves' disease is the like autoimmune um, process for hyperthyroidism. The opposite for hypo is Hashimoto's, but and that's I think talked about a lot. People are pretty familiar with with looking for alternative treatments for that. Whereas Graves' disease, people kind of have no clue there are other options or things that impact that. So I think I'm just very passionate about helping women in particular. Um, recognize that there are options for that. And, you know, you're not, you know, kind of on a mission to save the thyroids <laughs> if we can. So right. um, that's why I think anyone listening to this that has anyone they know with, you know, hyperthyroid or Grace disease and just thinks that there's no hope and that there's no other option, I just really encourage you to, um, if you're listening to this, you know, share it with somebody in your life that may benefit and just kind of spread the word because that's sort of what I feel like my mission is right now, is just having people understand that there are things that, that we can do when there is some things that are in our control of what we can help the body through that. And it doesn't have to be um, a thyroid removal or, you know, the radioactive iodine and things like that. So not that those are not necessary in some situations, I'm not saying that, but, um, but there is more hope to this condition specifically than I think people are aware of. Mm -hmm. So that kind of brings up uh, something in my mind and, you know, that this may be something that you have thought about as well, but do you, um, do you have any ideas of why it is that with hyperthyroidism, it's kind of a, a one size fits all, you've got hyperthyroidism, you know, particularly Graves, 
well, you got to get rid of the thyroid or or uh, do the the radioactive iodine treatment or you know completely anything to shut off the thyroid. Um, and I feel like with hypothyroidism, and and I don't know, I could be wrong, but as you say, it's a buzzword, and so there's a lot of people talking about hypothyroidism, and so it seems like so many more people recognize that there are other strategies, other things to think about hypo, but with hyper, it's like, that's it. One, one thing. Do you have any ideas about why that is, or am I kind of going down a weird, not, 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 not valid <laughs> um, path to ask that question? Yeah. No, I think that's actually um, a really good question. And I do, I have my thoughts on this and I, you know, take that with a grain of salt. These are just my thoughts, but um, generally speaking, conventionally, I think with any condition, right, even beyond thyroid stuff, there's just that medical algorithm, right? There's, you have this, therefore it's this treatment, you know, and then if that doesn't work, we don't know what to do with you because we have kind of a plug and chug system. So I think generally speaking, that's the way it works. And with hyperthyroid, the plug and chug system is like, take your thyroid out or, you know, zap it. So, um, and medication, there, there are obviously options there as well. But I think so. There's like that layer of it where that's just kind of how it is in general. Um, but when we're comparing something like hypothyroid to hyperthyroid, hypothyroidism doesn't have nearly as many like fatal consequences of mistreatment, whereas hyperthyroidism left unchecked, um, it can cause really serious damage and there's a lot more risk. Um, with fatality with it. So you really want to make sure that you are working with, you know, qualified practitioners who know how to manage and work with that. So I think there's a lot of fear mongering with Graves disease and hyperthyroidism in general that I think I, like lends to what you're talking about, where there's just almost like, at least in my experience, kind of what I see happening or playing out with my patients that come to me is when they're given the diagnosis, it's like, they're recommended within the next like couple of days to have the surgery or to have the radioactive iodine. So it's like this really immediate, like almost like, um, like an emergent kind of moment of like, okay, we found this thing. Like immediately we want to like, you know, get you straight into surgery. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't much of a, there isn't much room for conversation of like, what are my other options? Do those exist? Um, it, it's kind of like a, a, just a really fast paced, very stressful, very fearful kind of situation versus with hypothyroidism, the person isn't, isn't likely to, um, you know, suffer some of the more problematic cardiovascular effects like hyperthyroidism. And so they might get the diagnosis and it's like, okay, well, like here's a medication we recommend start it. We'll see you in 12 weeks to retest your levels and see how you're doing. And there's like, not a whole lot of like urgent concern with that conversation. So people will kind of leave the office and be like, huh, I wonder if diet has to do, can help with this. Or I wonder if there's other options for me with this. And so I think there's just more space given with hypothyroidism for people to be able to kind of feel out and do research to see if there are um, kind of, you know, alternative methods to support their body, even if they choose to go the pharmaceutical route, you know, oftentimes you can use both interventions to make the best of that situation. So I think there's just more safe, like there's less fear. And so there's more of like a, there's more room for that kind of just that natural research. Whereas with Graves disease or hyperthyroidism, it's just like immediate panic. And so people often don't even think to look into other options 
until it's like been 10 years and they're like, I'm really struggling. So, which is super unfortunate. And I think why I'm on such like a hellbent mission to get this information out because the sooner you have that diagnosis and the sooner you know what's going on, like the quicker you can get into remission from Graves' disease. I know that is going to say, I'm like, I, I, I know a lot of endocrinologists that would hear that and just think I'm like the craziest person in the world, but I would guess I would counter with like, look at all the people that are now in remission from, from the work we've been able to do. So um, the earlier diagnosis, like the earlier intervention with, with early diagnosis is really the best route. Um, so that's why I want this information and people to kind of understand, even if you're given this diagnosis, you have other options and to have avenues of like, you know, what clinics even work with this, what doctors are able to even deal with this so that they have the resources that they can look into before just deciding within 24 hours to remove their thyroid and then it not really help. And they still have a lot of problems. And then they're like, well, crap, I wish I had known this existed. Like if I had a penny for every time someone told me, I wish I knew you existed 10 years ago, like I would be a very rich person. And it's also just very heartbreaking. Um, because it doesn't have to be that way, but yeah, that's kind. Of, that's I think the basically the urgency and the panic about some of the the sequelae essentially of hyperthyroidism are why that conversation is almost never had about other options. And so, um, so yeah, it's really a bummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that Graves' disease is kind of the I don't know if you said the or a primary cause of hyperthyroidism. Um, are, are there other causes? I guess I am only familiar with Graves. So are there other causes okay. of, um, you know, underlying factors having to do with hyperthyroidism, not associated yeah. with autoimmunity? Absolutely. And the same okay. goes for hypothyroidism. I yeah. think we kind of just classify it as there's either, we either call it Graves. So within hyperthyroid, it's either Graves disease or it's hyperthyroidism. And Graves disease is just referring to specifically there are antibodies present where there's an autoimmune activity versus hyperthyroidism is just kind of the the umbrella term for you know hyperthyroid of any other cause essentially Uh um and on the flip side of that hypothyroidism it's those you know either Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism um Uh so it's does that make sense yes yeah yeah. we kind of classify as like autoimmune or not kind of like autoimmune or other right Right. Um, but yeah, there's tons of other causes for hyperthyroidism. The most common that I'm seeing in a practice is going to, is typically due to Graves disease. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of what I, um, speak on the most and have the most like kind of specific, um, mm-hmm. you know, thoughts on, but really in treating it, a lot of it is very similar. Um, and it, we're just kind of basically comparing it. Is this an autoimmune activity or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if it's an autoimmune activity, then your work is targeted or, you know, towards working on immune system things that are in support of optimal immune function along with potentially thyroid stuff. But as you mentioned earlier, you said, sometimes I'm not even doing things that are specifically targeted towards the thyroid. I'm doing things that are targeted towards other things. And, um, uh, you know, would you agree with that? Am I, am I off base on that? No, yeah, I think that you're, um, yeah, that sounds correct. And and I always think of um, kind of going back to what you're saying of just, I'm not necessarily, like depending on what I'm treating, it can change a lot, even within the same diagnosis. And the reason for that is the Graves' disease or the hyperthyroidism is kind of the what, not the why. Um, and so really to get, to get a person better, you need to be treating the why. And figuring out the why is the hard part and why working with somebody can really take the 
the guesswork and stress out of that because it's pretty hard to figure out the why by yourself. Um, mm -hmm. But that's an important distinction, I think, to say is like, because people might think that that's crazy to hear someone say, well, if I'm treating Graves' disease, why am I not necessarily like doing super targeted thyroid stuff? It's right. because it depends on the why of that person. And I may have 50 people with Graves' disease and they have kind of, you know, 50 different unique situations that are causing 50 different types of treatment. So, mm -hmm. yeah, well, and there, therein lies the beauty of naturopathic, you know, kind of a holistic approach to uh, health um, because you are looking at so many different things. And certainly, you know, I appreciate that as a holistic nutrition therapist. Um, yeah. And speaking of that, because we are a nutrition school, um, many people who listen to this podcast are interested in hearing things that, that are, uh, you know, dealing with nutrition. Um, can you talk about, and you know, you just said 50 different people are going to have 50 different things that you're going to be working yeah. on, but are there any generalities? Like how does nutrition therapy fit in your strategies for hyperthyroidism? Yeah, I think nutrition and food are so, so important for our overall health. Um, kind of in my program with people, I talk about like the five pillars of health and that's a topic, you know, for another day potentially, but, but nutrition is one of those pillars, right? So I don't, it's, it's a very important focus of like that whole body, whole body health. Um, when, especially when we're looking at autoimmune issues, it, you know, gut health, our microbiome, I mean, those things are really completely driving how our immune system is functioning. So if we're looking at the connection of those things, like you know, uh, an unhappy gut and an imbalanced microbiome are going to cause an erratic immune response. And so what happens is the immune system starts to not understand kind of what is itself and what's not itself. And then it starts to attack itself because it's just completely wonky. So, so diet nutrition play a huge role in a really big underlying cause of autoimmune processes. And so, and this isn't like, there's so much research for this now. It isn't something that, you know, naturopathic doctors have been talking about this for decades. And finally, we feel like we have really good research to back it up and people are like, oh, it turns out you guys have been right all along. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but so diet and food is super important. And I think one, um, there are some commonalities that I can speak to that I think honestly can benefit probably anyone with anything, but um I, I want to briefly just say when it comes to nutrition, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people kind of have this assumptive thinking that like restriction is the way to health, um, which I want to speak to of like, that's not true. Um, taking more and more things out of your diet over time is not the way to, to cure um, chronic degenerative disease. And I think kind of our diet culture and some of the different like health media out there really makes it seem like you have to remove like every food group from your diet to have a healthy diet and to have all that. And it's just not true. And so I want anyone listening to this to like, you can see improvements and work on this without just like eating three foods for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and in my office, like, obviously we're doing testing to get really specific data for people to like make some of the more nuanced recommendations that I would go into. But in terms of some like non-restrictive types of information that I think I'd like to share in regards to Graves' disease. One of them um, is about eating breakfast. And I, I kind of like, this is such a simple thing, um, but almost no one I see coming into my office really understands the importance of this. Um, and I think there are so many like 
layers to what can kind of normalize this for people. And I think especially women. Um, but when it comes to Graves' disease specifically, one of the issues that we see often within the adrenal physiology is that they have like an elevated cortisol response. And so um, that's a stress hormone that we, you know, don't really want to be kind of fight or flight raging high all the time. Um, it can cause just a lot of problems. And so a commonality with Graves is that they'll have kind of depleted adrenal glands and like hyper, hyper cortisol issues. Um, and one of the ways to calm cortisol down in, in the beginning of the day is to eat breakfast, because when you skip a meal, your cortisol has to spike to basically, you know, counteract not having any calories in your body for energy. And so you put yourself into this kind of high stress, high or like high stress hormone state that's really depleting and really problematic. And so a simple way to work on that is eating within half an hour to an hour of waking up. That's like one of the first things I have most of my patients do is to start eating breakfast like no later than an hour upon waking um and that honestly is sometimes one of the hardest things that I have my people like my that my patients are trying to implement is they can really struggle with that if they're chronic breakfast skippers but um if some tips if because like the feedback I get from that's like oh doc I can't do that because I'm not hungry in the morning and if I eat I like you know makes me feel nauseous and I'm like well we're gonna we're, I'll give you some strategies to get to like basically trick your body for the next few weeks and then I promise you you're gonna start feeling hungry and you wake up and no one ever believes me that they'll feel hungry in the morning and every single person comes back and they're like yeah I guess you were right that's kind of funny how that works and so what I tell people if you're if you're someone who struggles with eating first thing in the morning um it can be hard to jump to like a beautifully macro balanced breakfast if you're going from like zero to 100 right so I just tell people in the beginning just eat anything that sounds good. I'm not so concerned with like the uber specifics of what that is. I mean, obviously we're wanting to look at having, you know, a balance of protein and healthy fat and, you know, vegetables and fiber and things like that to balance blood sugar. But generally speaking, if all you can stomach, you know, is like fruit and yogurt or something like that, like start there. I don't so much care what it is, but just start eating something in the morning so your body can no longer have to be dealing with the cortisol response spike. So that's a, a really kind of simple nutrition one that's super important. And then from there, once you kind of master getting breakfast down, um, eating every kind of three to four hours to help with that blood sugar and the cortisol issues, that's also really helpful. So um, that's a big one. And do you think that's any questions about that do you think, or is that pretty, pretty No, uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, um, that is a huge problem, I think, uh, there's a lot, you know, another thing that's got a lot of buzz is intermittent fasting and, you know, eating only once or twice per day. And that may be great for some situations, but when someone's already in a high stress state, um, and then you add on top of that, needing to use a stress response to manage your energy levels, uh, can yeah. be really challenging. So I completely agree yeah. with you. I would actually say on the intermittent fasting and I, like, I have a lot of thoughts on intermittent fasting that are probably against what people think, but with Graves' disease, I am never recommending intermittent fasting. It is almost never a good fit for that population. So if you're someone trying to use that strategy to control hyperthyroidism, please do not. Um, mm -hmm. It's 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 very it actually creates a lot of problems that you're that I typically am having to sort of fix the aftermath of that. Um, it is, it's physiologically speaking, not adequate to be doing intermittent fasting in a hyperthyroid state. So mm -hmm. that's something that I would like to like to have out there in the world. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
I do have questions about two particular food categories that okay. um, are always talked about in the context of thyroid, whether it be hypo or hyper. And I'd like to get your take on them. Um, and they are cruciferous vegetables and seafood, both fish and seaweeds uh, due to the iodine content. So um, are there any generalities uh, that you yeah. are, are particularly passionate about um, in those two categories? And maybe explain, uh, you know, when I say cruciferous vegetables, I, you and I know what that means, but maybe sure, explain yeah. why we're talking about cruciferous vegetables. So yeah, that, those are really good questions, actually. I Cruciferous veggies, I talk about a lot with my patients. Um, I am a, so cruciferous vegetables are a, a classification of, of like vegetable grouping that are going to be the things like um, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, um, asparagus, bok choy, kale, those kinds of things. Um, they're, it's an amazing group of foods that I recommend people consume. However, my caveat is like, do not eat these things raw. Yeah. Um, the, I talk constantly about, about not consuming any raw vegetables. And like, honestly, this is probably one of the top three things that people get are like the most shocked by in our work together is that I'm like, don't eat raw food. They're like, well, what salad is so good for me. I, I, I eat raw salad every day for every meal. And I'm like, well, please stop doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, so we can, you know, talk through strategies of like having sort of, if people like that style of meal, having more of like a cook kind of harvest bowl situation, not just like a bunch of raw cruciferous vegetables in a bowl with like ranch dressing. Um, because yeah, I think cruciferous veggies are really only a problem, um, in their raw state, you know, consuming a lot of that can cause issues like goiter, which is sort of an enlargement of the thyroid and be just problematic, honestly, for digestive function, because those things are really hard to break down, especially if you are, don't have amazing gut vitality. So if you're already struggling with gut health, consuming raw vegetables of any kind really is going to be quite difficult, like a, a pretty high energy demand on the body. So when it comes to cruciferous vegetables, I love them, eat them, but eat, but cook them, please. Mm -hmm. um, I particularly like them for Graves disease because they're really helpful for the, for liver health and in Graves' disease and hyperthyroid in general, the liver can take a lot, of, can basically be very damaged from the process of hyperthyroidism. Um, most of my patients have elevated liver enzymes and there's like, you know, frank liver damage from the disease process. And so one of the ways that we can support liver health is through those vegetables, but you're not going to be able to accomplish that if you're eating them raw all the time. Um, and when I say cook them, people also like assume like the grossest ways to cook vegetables. Like I was talking about eating like, like cabbage, for instance, is such a superfood because it's really high in glutamine, which we have like taken and concentrated into these expensive fancy powders that we have people take, but no one eats cabbage. And I'm like, why don't you start there for, you know, a cheaper option. But mm -hmm. when I talk about cabbage, my, one of my patients the other day was like, I don't really like love boiled cabbage. And I'm yeah. like, how are you <laughs> boiling? Like, what are you doing? So, um, with all those vegetables, I'm like roasting them, grilling them, you know, saute. There's so many like delicious ways to cook those. And I would say if you've only had them boiled in soggy water, like in your childhood, expand your horizons of how to cook those because I promise they're delicious. Um, but people get really nervous about talking about cooking those foods for some odd reason. And I think we just like normalized eating raw broccoli because of those like veggie platters you get at the grocery store that are just yeah. like super easy to bring to dinner parties. But if you see those, do not eat them. Um, please cook them. So cruciferous, kind of the long, long story short, they're very good um, in, in large quantities. Raw can be very problematic for the thyroid. So definitely if you're suffering with either hypo or hyper, 
don't engage in raw cruciferous vegetable consumption, but typically no one should anyway. Um, but don't be afraid of them because they're great. They're great foods for the liver, um, great food for hormone balancing. I cannot tell you the number of people, this is not great specific, but people who have come to me for hormone issues that have been largely reversed, you know, through eating just a kind of liver supporting diet and those vegetables are a great source of that. So that's my thoughts on cruciferous. Are there anything else that comes to mind with that one specifically? There is one thing and uh, you know, I'm, I'm wary, wary of taking up too much time, but what about fermenting cruciferous like uh, back to cabbage sauerkraut? That would be kind of my only exception. Okay. I do love sauerkraut. Um, because it's fermented, it's going to be already like mildly pre-digested. So it isn't going to hit the same as like eating a bunch of raw broccoli. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but you only need like a forkful or something. Like you right. don't need a ton of it. I think people again, kind of like try to eat half their plate and sauerkraut in a day or something right. like that, which is insane. So a few right. forkfuls of, of, uh, you know, fermented cabbage, like sauerkraut is yeah. going to be great for the digestive system, really good probiotics. Um, an awesome, awesome food as medicine kind of tool, but you don't have to, you don't have to consume so much of it. And I think that's where people get confused. But the reason that that one is sort of my exception is, you know, the gut health with the probiotic activity and that, but also because of the fermentation process is kind of pre-digesting it for you. It isn't going to nearly have the same effect of trying to consume raw cabbage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you say that because I love sauerkraut. I make it on a regular basis. Um, it is a, uh, a staple yeah, in my, my diet right as, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, as, as condiment sizes. So I, I eat it, you know, little bits every day. Yeah. So glad to hear you're a big fan of it. Cause so am I. So. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. So then yeah. moving on to seafoods and iodine. Yeah. So this is one that I, I really think people freak out about this. And if, if you don't like, you have your iodine tested, I think this is where it comes with like working with a doctor who's doing a thorough workup to get a sense of like you specifically, do you have too much or is it too low? Because you can't really make an assumption based on the thyroid condition if that is always high or low, because I've seen everything on that whole spectrum with both populations. So you just, you really can't assume. And I think that's kind of the problem is that people assume that, but you do need iodine for thyroid hormone conversion. So it is an important nutrient to have, but I, you know, um, I don't just make assumptions that every single thyroid patient doesn't have enough. And I think that's kind of where people get into problems because, you know, overdoing it with any nutrient, right. You, you don't, we don't want to have too much of it either. Um, when it comes to fat, I think fatty fish was your question or just fish. Well, just seafood. either, um, fish or seaweed, mm -hmm. um, you know, kelp and those kinds of things. Of course, my, that's wrong, but. I mean, my thought with fish, my issues with fish, I guess my issue is a strong word, but my thoughts with it are more concerned with the like, heavy metal contamination more mm -hmm. so than anything. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to nutrition, and especially with protein sources, and protein is so, so, so important for regeneration of any tissue. So especially with thyroid stuff, we need to be making sure we're eating enough protein is another huge nutritional thing we talk about. But um, so I like fish as like a protein source, but um, I do sourcing is so critical with that protein, like animal based group. Mm -hmm. Um, it, and it's also very cost prohibitive to like source it really well. Um, so I don't find that I just, I'm relying on other sources of protein typically and other sources of, um, you know, fatty acids and omega-3s and things like that, than necessarily recommending tons of seafood, mm -hmm. um, 
not because I don't like seafood for people, but I think it's, it's really expensive and really complicated, um, to do it well enough to not have the risk of the heavy metal issues, because that's just becoming, even with wild caught, which is obviously when we're looking at wild caught versus, um, farmed, we want wild caught, but even like wild caught has issues, right? So there's, Mm -hmm. as our environment kind of, this is a whole other tangent, but as our environment, we have more exposure to those kind of chemicals and things in the water sources, and especially the you know fish that are eating the smaller fish, like you're contam- you're kind of building up these contaminants. And so my issue with seafood is a lot more to do with kind of the environmental impact of like mm. the toxin exposure on our bodies with that. So I'm not recommending people eating a ton of it. Um, people who love it, you know, we talk through like kind of how often it makes sense and how to how to source it well enough and um, within their budget does that work and if not like there are other really good sources of protein that we can get but Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i think you know um in in my sort of general framework of recommending fish you know once or twice a week i don't think it's something that you need to be eating every single day but once or twice a week i don't i don't think that there's a major concern with that but i wanted to be more you know more specific about the iodine content um, in terms of thyroid health. And as long as I don't hear yeah. you saying we should completely restrict it, never eat it, yeah. um, or, you know, eat it every day. Like you're not saying that. So, yeah. um, I feel like I'm, you know, in, in line potentially with what, uh, you might. Yeah. And I think with. the issue, I think that the issue is honestly, the problematic effects of it are far more to do with the the contamination within the fish itself than the iodine issue, to be honest. Yeah, I'm right. hardly ever really thinking of it in that regard. Yeah. Um, and well, that's, that's and the, where the context with this comes into for people, because what I'm obviously doing more thorough testing with my one-on-one patients. And so if I know they have a heavy metal burden, or if I know they have certain kind of environmental or toxic exposures, I may not be recommending seafood at all based on that alone, because we don't need to be adding insult to injury with that. So my conversations around seafood are almost, I feel like the iodine part of it is such a, compared to the other stuff, not nearly as um, big of a problem in, in what I'm seeing at least. And, um, but, I, but like I said, you can, people can kind of like here, you need iodine. And if you have hypothyroid, you know, make sure you have enough iodine and kind of right. really go overboard with it. Um, right. And that's where like work, working with a doctor or a qualified person to make sure you're doing that safely is really important. Um, because I think it's really about like not making assumptions that this is kind of what I hate about, like, I love access to the internet for all this great information, but I kind of hate how, because of that, we have almost like, we miss the context within some of these things like, oh, we need iodine for the thyroid. So therefore people are like, you know, screwing up other processes because they're way, you know, over consuming iodine. And so it's, again, it's about homeostasis and balance. And so the best way to make sure that you're being safe with those things is not like self-treating on the internet, but instead working with somebody who has an understanding of like the context of how all of these things relate and, you know, where you may be accidentally getting other sources of it. So if you're supplementing with it, now you're in kind of a dangerous situation and what to consider with food sources and all that stuff. So there's always more to the picture than just like every thyroid person needs more iodine because that's Mm -hmm. just really, really misguided um, as like a blanket statement, I think can be kind of problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Great. Well, um, I am looking at time and, and, uh, again, wanting to be very conscious of your time and respectful of your time. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for, uh, 
you know, your, your honesty and your professionalism and your, your really um, specialized knowledge in this area. It's been really, uh, really a really good conversation. So um, let's talk about how people can, you know, find you, how they can uh, work with you. Do you practice in-person only or do you do virtual? Um, and let's name your, your uh, clinic again, just because that was at the very beginning. So let, let's get the name of your clinic again and all that kind of good stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, the clinic that I work at um, and co-founded is Clear Creek Natural Medicine. Um, and our website is just that name.com. So clearcreeknaturalmedicine.com. Um, if you have questions or want to, you know, look into kind of one-on-one -on -one care, that would be the best, you know, avenue to do that. You can book a free discovery call and make sure that that's a good fit before moving forward with anything. Um, in terms of how you can access me otherwise, I do, I finally have an Instagram that people have convinced me to start with some of this education stuff. And so my Instagram is at Dr. So D-R Kayla, K-A-Y-L-A Cook, C-O-O-K. So at Dr. Kayla Cook. Um, and I do, I have, I'm a, I created a free ebook for people that really goes into kind of like the top five nutrients and supplements that they get a lot of questions on and kind of, cause supplements are a huge, huge thing. So, um, I created, it's a, just a like 20 or so page ebook for people that you can have access to that for free. If you're curious about uh, more information on some of those, like what I call core supplements for a healthy life. Um, and that's linked on my Instagram. If you can't find that, or, you know, you can always email the clinic directly at support at clearcreeknaturalmedicine.com. And we're happy to give you a copy of that. Um, those would be the most direct ways to get in touch with me. I think, does that cover? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Um, well, and also uh, you work virtually or in person oh. only? What's the, yeah. um, so I currently, my one-on-one -on -one clinical practice is all in person. I don't do a lot of virtual one-on-one -on -one care at this time. Um, however, I have had such an incredible demand for um, some kind of like self-paced or virtual option for people that like, aren't in Colorado and can't make it out here, um, that I am actually creating a course to kind of document just what I go through in my program with people on one-on-one -on -one, um, that people can access from anywhere in the world. And so that is being formulated kind of as we speak. So if you want to get on the wait list or are curious about that, just reach out to the clinic um, the email is support at clearcreeknaturalmedicine.com, or you can just DM me on Instagram and I can add you to the wait list. But, um, so I'm trying to meet the demand of some of those, um, virtual and kind of non-Colorado based people who still need this information and don't have a lot of access to those resources where they are. So I uh, bear with me. I'm trying, I'm creating it now. <laughs> um, it'll, it'll be out hopefully within the next kind of three months. So if you're interested in that, just let me know, but, but currently for my one-on-one -on -one practice, it is in person only. Yeah. Great. Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll come back on again. It seems like we have a lot of things in alignment of ways that we yeah. think and, and ways that, uh, um, you know, we, we collaborate in, in ideas. So that's awesome. Um, well, uh, is, is there anything that I did not ask you that you wanted to say? <laughs> and any other message that you want to get out there? I think if I had to just, my only, if it, I hope this was helpful, first of all, yeah. for anyone listening. I know there's so yeah. much to go into in the weeds of here. Like the hardest thing is like, oh my gosh, I have a million things I want to say and only so much time. But right. um, so I hope this was helpful. My main takeaway, if you heard nothing else in this is 
there is hope you have options um please don't just assume that there is is nothing that can help your body um there are tons of resources hopefully um sharing this information say you listen to this and you don't have grades but you know someone who does like send them this podcast i think it's sort of all i really want for the world in my in my lifetime is to be able to share and spread the awareness that there are hope there is hope and there are options for our health concerns even things like graves disease and hyperthyroidism um this isn't something that's an absolute just you know nail in the coffin kind of diagnosis and so Mm -hmm. if you heard nothing else that i said just please research your options for um working on your health and share this information with anyone that you could think it was useful great good all right yeah (laughs) right exactly all right well, good. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, we'll talk to you later. Me. Yeah. Bye. Hi there. And thanks for listening today. If what you heard today inspires you to want to pursue an education in holistic nutrition here at Nutrition Therapy Institute, please check us out on our website, nti-school.com, and reach out to us at admissions at nti-school.com. Our in-depth comprehensive education is sure to provide you with the knowledge and skills you need to create the work of your dreams. Do something that feeds your passion, aligns with your values, and fuels your drive for a vital and meaningful life. It will be rewarding for yourself, your family, and anyone else with whom you interact. And with that, see you on the next episode.